So this fall, what we're doing is we're looking at the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and 1 Peter is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in ancient Turkey. And as he is writing this letter to these Christians, these ancient Christians in Turkey, they are in a very unique situation. Because these Christians have been forcibly relocated by the Roman government to settle and to colonize this rural area in Turkey. And so Peter is seeing their physical situation and he is writing this letter to them to encourage them. But he is looking at them in their exilic state where they are sojourners, where they are truly immigrants in a foreign land. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them. But he sees their situation as a metaphor for the Christian life. And we are here, and this is where this letter gets incredibly relevant to us because in our cultural moment, Christianity is being marginalized we, Christianity is being marginalized and being pushed to the periphery of life. It's our, in our culture, it's okay to be a Christian as long as you keep your faith to yourself. It's okay to be a Christian as long as you don't share your faith in the work, workplace. It's okay to be a Christian if you don't bring your faith into your politics or into romance or into finances or into sexuality. It's okay to be a Christian if you keep it private. So that's just one example of, of how Christianity is being pushed to the periphery. And so at this moment, one of the ways that Peter is encouraging these exiles who are experienced, experiencing marginalization for their faith and intimidation for their faith, he's encouraging them with the simple truth that they are ransomed by grace. And that's the idea I want to look at today. And we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 21. I'm reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your worship guide or on the walls behind me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 1, begin with verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, were not, that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who, are, who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as... Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at your word, may your spirit be at work in our life. May we see more about this grace. That, may we learn more about this grace. May we experience this grace that has been given to us by your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, Jennifer and I made a decision that we are going to be on the market for a new sofa, a, a new couch. And so as, as I, I'm looking on the internet for all these uh, different types of couches, I'm looking for furniture, sales, and so forth, I see this one ad that is a, a, from the mid-century warehouse in South Philly, and it caught my eye. The, this is gorgeous furniture, and it's at good prices. And so I look at the ad, and what I see is that this warehouse is not selling brand new furniture whatsoever. This is not uh, newly fabricated furniture whatsoever. Instead, they either accept donations, uh, where they accept donations of mid-century furniture, where people are just uh, seeking to get rid of them, but these donations are in very poor, they're in very uh, poor, they're broken. I'm forgetting the word I'm trying to say right there. They're just not, in, they're not in good, they're in very poor shape. There we go. And so uh, they're, but also they'll go out and they'll see uh, various pieces and perhaps sometimes they'll be for sale and they'll buy them um, at a price. But then they take these broken uh, pieces of furniture, these, this furniture that's in poor shape, and they'll go about the work of refinishing them of restoring them. When they see an old sofa with a broken support board, they imagine it fixed, so they fix it. When they see a, a chair with a torn upholstery, they see it fixed. And so their entire business is, in the, is restoration. It's, they are taking people's broken, damaged, unusable goods to see them restored to new life again. And Peter is writing to these Christians with that mentality. He's writing to them with a similar mindset. They are far from home. They are living in a strange land. They have been forcibly relocated by the Roman government because of their faith. They're being marginalized. They're being pushed to their periphery because they believe in Jesus. And so perhaps they're there in a foreign land and they're thinking about their pre-Jesus days. They're thinking about, perhaps they're thinking of, the, of life before they were Christians, before they were being uh, per, uh, marginalized. And they're thinking about this with a degree of nostalgia. And perhaps some of them thought, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have been kicked out of my home. You know, if I wasn't a Christian, perhaps if I was more quiet about my faith, perhaps I would still be at home. I wouldn't be in this situation. And so Peter's writing to them. He's writing to these Christians and wants them to encourage, he wants to encourage them with the simple news that life with God is better than life than the, that they had previously. And it's all because they were ransomed by grace. So let's just really dive into this. Because of this one idea that we are ransomed by grace, this one idea has incredible implications for us. And in, in so many ways, this week is part one and next week is part two. But let's just dive into this. Idea, And we're going to start with this idea of being ransomed. And this we see in verse 18. Verse 18, Peter writes this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. So Peter is reminding the exiled Christians of their history. He's reminding them of their story. We, we learn from this passage that these Christians that, who are exiled are actually new Christians. 
They are converts to the Christian faith. They are not Jewish. They did not grow up with this story. They did not inherit these things by their family. They are brand new to the Christian faith. Peter says it quite clearly that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. These Christians are converts. But Peter is also using a unique word to describe Jesus' redemptive work in their lives. It's a work that strikes us. It's, it surprises us. because He uses the word ransom. And we see ransom, like, and like perhaps if you were with us this summer, when we look through the Gospel of Mark, uh, and Mark is Peter's secretary, but Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This idea of Jesus giving his life as a ransom is a theme in all of Peter's writing and his preaching and his sermons. And so as he leans into this word ransom, we think about this word as where you pay off a kidnapper to get your loved ones back. But the Greek word for ransom, it has more nuance and implications for it. The Greek word for ransom has the idea about manumission. And that's a word we don't use whatsoever. Manumission is, ex exists solely within history, within our American mind. But manumission had to do with the, with the of liberating a slave. Though a word that is similar but very different is emancipation. And emancipation is actually something that's much more seared into our minds as Americans with the emancipation Emancipation Proclamation. Emanci emancipation is when the government f liberates sleeves. Slaves. Sleeves. What am I saying? Emancipation is where the government liberates slaves. The government is the one who acts and liberates slaves. But manumission is when the owner, the slave owner, would liberate a slave. But, and how it happened within the Roman world is that for a slave owner to free a slave, the owner would have to pay a certain sum of money. That money would actually have to be given at the temple of a god or, or, or a goddess. There would have to be a civil leader, a civil authority who would be there, who would grant this freedom that was purchased by the slave owner. And Peter brings this up with crystal clarity that all his his recipients of this letter knew exactly what he was talking about because we see this at the end of verse 18, that you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So Peter is writing this with this idea of manumission in his mind where he, he, is, he is telling these Christians that they have been liberated, they have been rescued, they have been ransomed from their previous life, from their futile life, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But think about your own life for a moment. How are you liberated? How are you freed? How, how do you contend with the powerful parts of yourselves which seem entrenched due to old habits, bad decisions, or before the, the days where you did not know Jesus? Think about your own life. How are you freed? How, are, how do you experience liberation in your own life? And, or to use a different word, how do you experience salvation in your own life? The honest truth is that we have hundreds of different salvation strategies which only help us cope 
or lead us in the direction of sin management. Our view, idea of salvation is, as perhaps if you have grown up in the church, your idea of salvation is, as long as I don't sin as much as I did once upon a time. So in that mindset, your behavior may change, but your hearts don't change. You don't thrive. You don't flourish. Perhaps with that mindset, you're, you're white-knuckling it. You're simply trying harder and harder and harder, but at the end of the day, you are relying on your energy and yourself to change. Perhaps you, re- you refuse to be honest with yourself or others. So what that actually means is that you're not really known. And because you're not known, you're not experiencing the liberation that, is, that you desperately need. Or perhaps it's actually quite different, where you just shrug it off and you be out of cynicism and you think to yourself, you know, I can't change. I can't experience this freedom. This freedom may be for someone else, but it's not for, for me. Perhaps that's you. Because all these things I just mentioned are, are coping mechanisms. They are sin management strategies that actually avoid the central thing that we need to experience the freedom that is promised to us. And that what all these things avoid is the cross. All these things I just mentioned avoid the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus rescues us. This is what Peter's point is. Jesus rescues us. He restores us. He liberates us with his precious blood, which he shed for you upon the cross. And Peter looks at our lives as Christians, and he is saying that the one thing, there's one thing that should define your life, and it's the cross. It's on the cross that we are freed. It's on the cross that we are rescued and ransomed. It's on the cross that Jesus liberates us. And this is a different story than what the story that our world tells us to live by, but it is the story that should shape our life. And the author of this letter is actually important for us to consider. One re- this is actually one reason we looked at the Gospel of Mark this past summer so that we would have a deeper understanding of who Peter is. Because we clearly see how Jesus, how Jesus upon the cross very specifically changed Peter's life. Because to just to share a little bit about Peter, because what we see Peter doing in the Gospels is that he is reckless, he is thick-headed. He, he, he gets an idea, but he doesn't understand the implications of it. He's arrogant. He's dense. He's more. Like, there's this one beautiful moment when Jesus is talking with his disciples, and Peter is one of Jesus's best friends. And Jesus is talking with him. It's like, hey, who do people say I am? And the, the disciples say, well, so-and-so says you're Elijah. So-and-so says you're a Moses. So-and-so says you're, you're a prophet like John the Baptist. And then Jesus turns it and says, but who do you say I am? And that's when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a beautiful confession. But from there to the end of Mark, what we see is Peter never understands what that means. When, when literally right the next part of Mark is that we see uh, Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to go to the Jerusalem now and die upon the cross. And Peter says, hey, buddy, no, you don't sit on the throne of Jerusalem. That's what you're going to do instead. And, and that's when Jesus says, get, be, get behind me, Satan. And so Peter goes from this arrogant, dense, reckless guy who tells Jesus what to do, which is funny, 
And then he, we see in Acts that Peter all of a sudden gives the first sermon on Pentecost, one week after Jesus' Jesus's exaltation. We see him giving this, this, this sermon. But not only that, we see him arrested for his faith. We see him arrested and beaten for his, his preaching. And when he's released, he leaves rejoicing that he is suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. See, Peter gets it. Peter's life completely changes. And we see this even by those who are harassing the earliest Christians. Because what we see in the book of Acts, one of the, the, the witnesses to all this is saying, aren't these the same men that were with Jesus for like his entire earthly ministry? Like what the point is from that perspective is that these disciples are completely different men. And they're completely different people because of the grace of Jesus Christ that they received on the cross because they are ransomed. And this is going to bring us to our second point. Because Jesus ransomed you. Jesus rescued you. And and so that changes things for you. He makes you sons and daughters of God. He earns you, because of his work, you get privileges and more. But within all this... This is, the, this is the entire story of Scripture. And Peter brings us up. This is our second point, going from ransom to the idea of promised redemption. And Peter simply points out that, and this is looking at verses 10 through 12, verses, what we see right here, Peter is simply pointing out that the entire Bible, that, as he had it at that very moment, the entire Bible, beginning with the prophets, is for these Christians. That these prophets inquired and spoke about how the Christ would suffer. He is making the point that the central idea, the central plot of the entire Bible is that Jesus was the suffering servant of Scripture. He's a suffering servant of God who would rescue his people from spiritual slavery. That is the central theme throughout all the Scripture. And so as we look at the, at the Bible today, we look at the, the Scripture, and there are 66 different books within the Bible. But each one of these 66 different books, they're not offering different uh, plot lines. They're actually adding different nuances to that one idea that Jesus came to rescue and liberate God's people from their spiritual slavery. That is what the entire Scripture is about. Now, and this is surprising because, well, perhaps you're here today and you look at the Bible and you're thinking about the Bible that is a book of rules, that the Bible is a book of do's and don'ts. Where, and with that mindset, the Bible is simply telling you how to live or how not to live. And so while the Bible does have rules in it, which is called the law, there, the, the law's purpose is actually how to teach you how to thrive and flourish. It's not the basis for, uh, for flourishing, but it teaches you how to flourish. And I'll, we'll come to that in a few moments. Others think the Bible is a book of heroes and villains. where the, Within the stories of Scripture, there are moral examples where we look at these people and we see people whom we should imitate. I think about one hymn. It's a hymn we'll never sing. But it's, the entire hymn is Dare to be a Daniel. And that's the mindset, that, that idea is how many approach Scripture. And so why, while the Bible has heroes in, in it, Scripture much more candidly puts those heroes' lives in their, 
in the, the full life experience. Like we look at David, for example, the man after God's own heart, but he was a bad king. He was a bad husband. He was a, uh, a bad father. Like just keep going. Like, David, like that's, and scripture is very honest about David, this man who is after God's own heart. And that's because our salvation is not in these minor heroes or these people of scripture. Our, our salvation is, is in Jesus Christ. And that is because, and like, but what is going on? In truth, the Bible is a story. It's true. And it's a true story. And that's wonderful news. And there are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all these stories, like I said, are adding a different nuance or different perspective to the one big story. And the story of how God loves his children, loves his people, and comes to rescue them through the suffering of Jesus Christ. To quote the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. But the best news that I actually have not even gone over yet, the best news in that little summary of Scripture is this. This, the Bible is given for you. Look at how Peter describes the Scripture. That the, because of the Scriptures that the prophets had, that they inquired, the, 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 the prophets prophesied about the grace, look at this, verse 10, that was to be yours. The prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, then here's this. This is mind-blowing to me. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Just keep going. Verse, 13, uh, verse 12 at the very end just really blows my mind. Um, that you have this good news that is yours. It's preached, uh, the, these uh, apostles preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Right here, the, how Peter is describing Scripture is that it is given for you so that you would experience this love and this intimacy and this grace of God that is yours because Jesus ransomed you upon the cross. And Peter is very specifically, as he is uh, it, uh, alluding to Scripture, he is alluding to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, we shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So what Peter is pointing out is that Jesus is the suffering servant who comes to rescue us and liberate us from our spiritual slavery. And so in all of this, this is an incredible point. Because in this specific moment in history, the, the Old Testament belonged to the Israelites. The Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms and the writings, all of these, this was the book of the Jewish people. But he, it, it, what Peter is pointing out is that this is not just the book of the Jewish people that in this specific redemptive moment. This is a book that is for God's people, for these converted pagan these converted pagans, these pagans who came to believe in Jesus Christ for the first time. He says, this book is yours. This grace is yours. That is a privilege. 
These people would never assume such a privilege would belong to them. But God's word, God's promises, God's grace is theirs and they are for you as well. And because of this grace that you have, this is an incredible intimacy that even those who surround God this moment in, in heaven, the angels, long to look into the intimacy and the grace that you have with God because of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible gift to us. You are privileged because you are ransomed by grace. Let me just lean into this idea of privilege, of having this spiritual privilege, because one pastoral conversation I have rather regularly has to do with our wrong assumptions, where we lower our status. Instead of seeing ourselves as children of God, we see ourselves as orphans. So we think God's word is not for me. Instead of seeing ourselves cleansed and righteous, we see ourselves as guilty sinners. So you know what? The Lord's Supper is not for me. So, so you know what? I'm not going to go to worship because, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I had a, a, an awful week. I'm just not going to go. And so that, that, what that is right there is that we actually are buying into lies of the devil. We're, we're actually buying into these lies that are being assaulted that we face and be, that we're being assaulted with. And ultimately, we are lowering our status from children to orphans, from privileged to those who don't deserve it. And the truth is we don't deserve this grace, but this is the grace that God gives us because we are loved by God. And that is incredible. And the entire point that Peter's making here is that because of this grace that we have, we are meant to live differently. This is our third point. We are meant to live differently. And this is going to be something that we'll continue to see next week. But we are called to live differently. And we see this in verses 13 through 14. And what Peter is simply bringing up right now is that Christians have a distinct calling to live differently than non-Christians. And he uses different language and different phrases to get at this point. For example, here's one so here's one example. Looking at verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Jesus put it differently in Luke 12. He, this is Luke 12 says, Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. So what Peter is saying right now is roll up your sleeves and get to work. And by having a singular focus in your life. And the singular focus in our life, he continues, is where we set our hope fully on the grace that will be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So ours, the singular focus that we are meant to have in our life is the grace given to us because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we go throughout our, our life and our, and our week, there, we're going to be tempted, we're going to be, be pushed to be to really be distracted, where we are setting our focus on something else, our mind on something else. But the truth is that our, lo- our mind needs to continue to come back to this simple point. To use, a, think about a compass. The needle of a compass always points north. This is how we need to think about our lives. We need to constantly come back to this truth of God's grace. Our, the goal is that our minds must be fixed upon God's grace. And so if you're going to take this seriously, you need to adopt a training mentality. So to get into this, like some of you are runners. Even uh, some of you are training right now for a race, whether it be a 5K or a marathon. But when you are going to run, you're following a training plan. Or 
Another example could be is that if you want to lose weight, you're, you go and hire a trainer or you hire a nutritionist and you follow their plan. And this is what we're called to do. We need to adopt a training mentality, and it begins with our minds. And so Peter goes on and reinforces our need to have a training plan, a training mentality from another angle. He says this, and he says, and this is, he actually quotes Leviticus 11.44, which was our call to confession. He says, you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And right there, he's saying that you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, let, let me just get into this uh, because holiness is not language we often use outside of the church. Like, yes, we've even sung it today, that holiness is Christ in me, which is beautiful. But in our world, in our culture, we, how our world thinks about holiness is often thought in terms of religiosity or moralism. And in a moralistic mindset, the thought goes like this, that you obey God, you keep his commandments, and therefore you earn his love. That's moralism. That's religiosity. And that is a, it's a wrong idea of the Christian faith, but it is a popular idea of the Christian faith. It's, it's even popularized by a TV show. It's a, a hilarious TV show called The Good Place. And the idea of The Good Place is that you, if you do good things, then when you die, you'll go to The Good Place when you die. That's, again, not the Christian faith. It goes against everything Peter is saying here. Peter's logic is that you are rescued, you are ransomed by God, therefore live differently. You are already loved. You are already accepted. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And this is where we need to start. But to think, let's think about the word holiness as well from a biblical perspective. To be holy means to be set apart. And Peter is quoting this call to be holy from the book of Leviticus, which uses that phrase at least four different times. But as you look at the Old Testament, when you see Leviticus, it's tucked in between there, between uh, the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the way that Leviticus talks about holiness is actually different than how Moses talks. Let me rephrase that. Moses is talking about holiness in Leviticus in a different way than the way that he is talking about holiness in Exodus or Deuteronomy. For example, if you look at Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments. You look at Deuteronomy 5 as well, you have the Ten Commandments. So you look at the idea, the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you see holiness being described in terms of our, of our life, in terms of uh, law and commandments. But here's the thing. Leviticus is not doing that. Leviticus is a book where of how we approach God through customs and rituals and even things. If you go to the book of Leviticus, you look at this context that he is citing from in Leviticus 11, you're going to see that there's things. They are objects that are called holy, like a table, like a fork, a knife, a bowl. And so what we see, there are these utensils and these pots that are being called holy. And so right here, we need to, to point out that holiness does not just mean morality. Holiness does not just mean ethics. Because what does a holy table look like? What does a moral table look like? That idea challenges us. So what's it mean to have a holy table? 
What's it mean to have a holy pot? And the answer is at this table, this pot is actually set apart for God's use. In other words, as, as Peter is calling, is calling us to be holy here, this is what Peter is saying, is that you have been set apart to participate in God's work in this world. You have been liberated for good works. You have been rescued to seek justice, to care for the orphan, to care for the widow, to walk humbly with your God. That is what Peter's point is. We are called to live differently because we are participating with, in God's work in this world. We are participating in God's mission in this world. And so what we see right now is that God's holiness has no limits. That is incredible. His holiness is meant to define our friendships, our marriages, our work, our leisure, our finances, our politics. Holiness is as much about what you do in the workplace as you do at home. Holiness is, is about neighboring as it is about worship. But the, the crazy thing, the thing that just blows our everything up, really, is that you are already made holy by Jesus Christ. You are made holy by Jesus' death. Peter, not Peter, Paul, summarizes this in a crystal clear way in 1 Corinthians 6.19. You are not your own, for you have been bought at a price. You are not your own. We are purchased. We are ransomed. We are bought by God because of Jesus Christ's blood that he shed on the cross. And so we are set apart for good work, works. And it's all, it's all because of grace. And Peter even goes in, in this direction. Because we have God as our Father, our hearts should be full of wonder and awe. But because God is our Father, we have nothing to be afraid of. So as we come to wrap this up, we do, we do not have life with God because we did something. We have life with God because God did something. We are not Christians because of our good works. We are not uh, Christians because we chose to have life with God. We are Christians. We are God's people, his sons and daughters, because of his love for us. Truly, we did nothing, nor can you do anything to earn God's love. It's completely unearned. And, and the biblical word for that idea of being completely unearned is grace. So grace is meant, this grace changes everything for us. It, prov it provides an incredible motivation for us to live differently so that when we are being marginalized, so that when we are facing ridicule and intimidation, we come back to this fact that we are rescued and ransomed by God and that we are called to live a different life. And what we're going to see next week is what is the, the marks? What is the quality of the life that we are called to live differently? But as we live different lives, we live different lives because we are rescued by Jesus Christ. That is an incredible point. We are called to live different lives because we have been ransomed by grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace that you have shown us and given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask in the coming weeks, in the coming days ahead, we ask that you would work in our life, work in our hearts, that we would live uh, new, new lives that are completely shaped by your grace. And so, Father, give us the eyes to see this more and more. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.